One of the greatest dangers is the American church, the church anywhere, but it's especially common in the American church, is the doctrine of salvation that, though widely believed, is entirely false. This doctrine has been derisively called easy believism. And easy believism basically says, as long as someone has prayed a prayer, they're saved. Regardless of anything else in their life. It doesn't matter how they live. It doesn't matter what they do. And really, essentially, it doesn't matter what they believe. So long as they have prayed a prayer, they are good to go. They are saved and heaven will be their home. Easy believism is a a doctrine of salvation that enables someone to base their salvation on a prayer they prayed sometime in the past, despite the fact this salvation having no apparent impact on their on their present life. Now, those who promote easy believism have no problem with the idea that a past profession has no impact on a person's current life. After all, they would say, doesn't Scripture say that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved? Therefore, these people prayed a prayer. They called upon the Lord. They are saved. And, and it's true. Scripture does say all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But Scripture also says that those who have called upon the name of the Lord, that they are made into a brand new creation because the old way of life has passed and a new way of life has come. Scripture also says that being a part of a, being a new creation is that we have new desires and that we live differently than we did before we were saved. Scripture also says that we are to be holy because our God is holy. Scripture says that believers in Jesus are to be obedient to God and not live the way that they lived before they were saved. Scripture also says that believers in Jesus must deny themselves, take up their crosses daily, and follow Jesus. And really, Scripture says that without doing that, we aren't actually following Jesus. Nothing in Scripture leads me to believe that salvation is a prayer that we prayed at some point in the past, but has no apparent impact on our day-to-day life. In fact, Scripture leads me to believe the exact opposite of that. The salvation that Jesus died to provide not only changes our eternal destiny, but it changes our day-to-day lives. It has a profound impact on how we think, how we speak, how we prioritize our lives, the actions we take, the way that we react to stressors, our values. It has a profound impact on virtually every aspect of our lives. And what I see in Scripture is that a salvation with no impact on our day-to-day lives does not actually change our eternal destiny. Now this matters because our communities and our churches are filled with people who believe they're going to heaven when they die. And they are basing this belief on a profession of faith they made years ago 
but a profession of faith that has no impact on their lives in the moment, right now. And in our text today, Jesus says that those people will hear the saddest words of all. Open your Bible to Matthew 7. Verse 21 is where we're going to start. Page 738 if you have in the Pew Bibles, if you stand on the reading of God's Word when you find it. Now again, let's keep in mind that this is Jesus who says it. And that's important because so often today the idea is that Jesus was just like really easy and really easy going. And really so long as you were just basically kind and really kind of loved people, Jesus said you were okay. Right? The, the focus is on Jesus saying, don't judge and love one another. Right? But that same Jesus who said love one another, that same Jesus who said judge not, He said these words, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The title of the message this morning is, The Saddest Words to Hear. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you. And we bow before you. And we surrender this time to you. We surrender this time to focus on what you have for us from what Jesus has said. We surrender our ears to listen carefully to the words of Christ. We surrender our hearts to let this word sink deep so that it would bring forth good fruit of salvation in us. We surrender our belief system so that what you say, what Jesus has said is what we would believe. Not what makes us comfortable. Not what makes us feel good. Not maybe what we've always believed, but what Jesus has said. Holy Spirit, guide me today. That I would speak the word clearly. And I would speak accurately. And I would speak it the way that it ought to be said. Do not let me get in the way in any, in any way that I would be a hindrance to what Jesus is saying to us from His Word. Fill me, Holy Spirit, and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Use me to lift up Jesus that all would be drawn to Him. Take the Word today. Use it like a light to dispel any darkness in our minds that we would clearly see Glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Take the word Holy Spirit and use it like a hammer. And knock down any strongholds or false beliefs that we may have. So that our thoughts could be brought captive to the obedience of Christ. And Holy Spirit, take the word today and use it like a mirror. That we could see our lives in light of what Jesus has said clearly. 
where there is error in us. Let us repent. Let us turn. Have your way in all aspects. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. She may be seated. Jesus' words here should be shocking. They should cause us to come to a full stop and, and ponder them. As he says, not everyone who expects to go to heaven will go to heaven. I mean, that's it's a hard saying. And again, this is Jesus who says it. Not only will not everyone who expects to go to heaven go to heaven. Notice the way Jesus says that they address Him. They say to Him, Lord, Lord. They're calling Jesus Lord. What we ought to take from this is that Jesus isn't talking about irreligious people here. Jesus isn't talking about the anti-God but good moral crowd. Jesus isn't talking about those that are trapped in the kingdom of the cults. Jesus isn't talking about the atheist or the agnostic. Jesus is talking about people who would say they believe in Jesus. Jesus is talking about people who would say that they were saved. To put it in our modern context, Jesus is talking about people that go to evangelical Christian churches. People just like us. Despite the fact that these people profess faith in Jesus, they have never truly been saved. Jesus does not know them. And therefore they will not go to heaven after judgment. This comes as a complete shock to them as we'll see in the text. And in this day, on this day of judgment, as they stand before Jesus in eternity, they will hear the saddest words. I never knew you. Depart from me. Are the saddest words to hear. My goal today is to do everything I can to ensure you don't have to hear these words. Now, while I don't want you to hear these words, I don't have the ultimate say. In the end, you do. What I want to do today is give you two questions to ask and honestly answer to see If on the day of judgment, when you stand before Jesus, will you hear, well done, good and faithful servant? Or will you hear, I never knew you, depart from me? The first question is, does my walk match my talk? Does my walk Match my talk. These people say to Jesus, Lord, Lord. Right? And the word used for Lord, the Greek word used for Lord is the same word used for Jehovah in the Greek Old Testament. Right? These people are confessing that Jesus is Lord. They are confessing 
the deity of Christ. They are saying we know that you are God. So what we should picture here is that these are people who know right doctrine about Jesus. If you were to ask them doctrinal drills about who Jesus was. Or why Jesus came. Or his life, his death, his resurrection. They would give you all the right answers. And yet, they still are not saved. That seems almost impossible to me. That someone could know and affirm the right doctrines about Jesus. And yet, be unsaved. But that is what Jesus is teaching here. Now, I think about this with my own life. I was raised in Bible-believing, Jesus-preaching churches all of my life. We always were a part of church. We always went to church. We always went to Sunday school. I cannot remember a time in my life when I did not believe that the Bible was the Word of God and it was right in everything that it said. I, I do not remember a point in my life when I didn't believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, or He rose again on the third day, and that salvation was found only in Christ. Now despite the fact that I always knew that, and I always believed that, I really wasn't saved until I was 19 years old. So we wonder, how is that possible if we're saved by faith? How can someone believe and affirm the right doctrine about Jesus, but never be saved? Well, look at what Jesus goes on to say. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Right? It's not those who who affirm the right doctrine about Jesus, but those who do the will of God. Now, does that mean that Jesus is teaching a works-based salvation, that we, if we're good enough, we do enough, then we go to heaven? Is He saying that we work ourselves into the kingdom of God and salvation? Well, no. He's not saying that. But He is saying that we must obey God. That obedience is an important part of biblical faith. I mean, one of the most important truths we can understand about a biblical faith is that real faith, biblical faith, it does have a profound impact in the way that we live our lives. There is an unbreakable link between faith and works. We won't look at it this morning, but study James 2. James says, faith without works is what? It's dead. Now, the fact that James says dead is significant because James doesn't say faith without works is a problem. James doesn't say faith without works isn't best. James doesn't even say faith without works is weak, but generally okay. What James says is that faith without works is dead. Now, the reason the word dead is significant is because Jesus came to give us what and what more abundantly? Life. Those, God for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall have eternal life. Jesus came that we would have life and a faith without works is dead. That is a stark contrast. That is not saying that a faith without works is salvation but a loss of rewards in heaven. That is not saying faith without without works isn't best but in the end it's going to be okay. 
What James is telling us is faith without works is dead. There is no salvation. A faith that doesn't motivate me to do the things God has said is not a faith that saves me. There must be a change in my life, a desire to do the will of God. And that desire at some point has to come out. It has to move me to actually act in accordance to the will and the word of God. And when it doesn't, I am not saved. Regardless of all the doctrinal answers I can give about Jesus. That is exactly what Jesus is talking about in verse 21. These are people who claim to have faith in Him, but that faith has zero impact on their life from day to day. These are people who claim to be Christian, and yet in their daily life, they never take into consideration God's will or God's want or God's word. They they do what seems best in their own eyes. These are people who claim to be Christian, and yet take no real thought about God until things go bad. In their lives. And Jesus says to these people. You have not really trusted in me. And you are not saved. Depart from me. For I never knew you. That's brutal. I mean that's absolutely brutal. So much so that we want to soften it up. And we want to say that's really not what Jesus is saying. And if this was the only place we see something along these lines. We might could do that. But, Scripture speaks often of things like this. The Apostle John says, Now by this we know that we know Him. How do I know that I know Jesus? If I keep His commandments. He who says, I know Him, and does not keep His commandments is what? A liar. And the truth is not in him. Again, truth is significant regarding John. Because in John's gospel, Jesus is what? The way, the truth, and the life. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. The word is called the word of truth. So, if I say that I know God, but I don't obey God, then the Son of God, the Spirit of God, and the Word of God are not actually in me according to James. Or according to John. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we're in him, that we obey him. And he who says he abides in him, in Jesus, ought to himself also walk as Jesus walked. How did Jesus walk? In obedience to the Father. He did all the things that God wanted him to do. That is a profound passage. And it is one that we, we have to take seriously. The idea of easy believism that I made a profession of faith in my past. And yet it doesn't affect my present. That concept is not found anywhere in scripture. But let me, let me make it a little, little harder. The concept that my child made a profession of faith at some point in the past and it has no impact on their present is not found in Scripture. A person who, though they made a profession, though they may have been baptized, though they may know the right answers, if that profession does not impact their lives, then according to Jesus, according to John, 
That person is not saved. Salvation impacts our day-to-day life. Our actions speak loudly about our genuine faith. About the genuineness of our faith. Obedience to God demonstrates I know God. A lifestyle of disobedience to God demonstrates I do not know God. Obedience to God demonstrates I love God. A lifestyle of disobedience to God demonstrates I do not love God. Obedience to God demonstrates I am a disciple of Jesus. A lifestyle of disobedience to God demonstrates I am not a disciple of Jesus. Obedience to God demonstrates I'm saved. A lifestyle of disobedience demonstrates I am not saved. It's another passage. We would love to soften up what what John says. Because we do not like the unyielding way that it jabs us. But we cannot simultaneously claim to take Scripture seriously and then soften up the parts of Scripture we don't like. Scripture is clear. Those who know God, those who love God, and are disciples of Jesus will obey God. At the same time, Scripture is clear. Those who do not obey God, they do not know God, they do not love God, and they are not disciples of Jesus. And this is true regardless of anything they may profess with their mouths or any sort of doctrinal questions they may be able to answer. Because Scripture teaches it is possible to profess faith in Jesus with our mouth and deny Him with our lives. They profess to know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. The truth about our faith is is told by our lives, not by our words. So if we want to ensure that we don't hear the saddest words when we get to eternity, we need to ask and honestly answer, does my walk match my talk? The second question is, why do I do what I do? Jesus says in verse 20, he starts by saying, many. Many will say to me in that day. Now, I mean, just think about that. Many. That, that's not one or two. It's not a few. There will be many who stand before Jesus on judgment day expecting to call heaven their home but will be terribly, horrifically shocked to find out it's not. Compared to verse 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find that. Many take the broad way and go to destruction. Many 
are deceived in this life about whether or not they're saved and will hear, depart from me. I never knew you. It's the nightmare of pretty much every pastor I know. The fear of having people come to church week after week, year after year, listen to the gospel, but never truly trust Jesus as their Savior. And yet many, that's what will happen. Now the problem in verse 22 seems to be different than the problem in verse 21. The last group, they said the right things, but they didn't really do the right things. Their faith didn't lead them to any action. Now this group actually did things. And they say to him, we've prophesied in your name, we've cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name. They had done many works, they had done many things, and yet they are still not saved. So we have a problem. To really understand their problem, we have to take a good look at their wording, what they say. Now clearly they're surprised about not gaining entrance into heaven. They're surprised at being told, I never knew you. And as they contest with Jesus, notice what they say is the basis of their gaining entrance into heaven. Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And what they're essentially saying to Jesus is, look at what we've done for you. We we deserve to go to heaven. Right? From what we see here, they were working under the assumption that they would earn heaven by their good works. They are trusting in themselves and in their works, but not in Jesus. And let me ask you a question. Why should Jesus allow you into heaven? Why should you be allowed to go to heaven and not hell? Now how we answer that is honestly a really good indicator about our spiritual condition. If in the answer you pointed to the cross, and the fact that the tomb was empty, and that you had repented of your sins and believed in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, that's the biblical answer. But on the other hand, if you were to point to your good deeds, your high moral standards, or any other good thing that you have done, or people that you're better than, that not as bad as those people then you're among the the many that Jesus is talking about in verse 22. I talked to a lady once and was sharing the gospel with her. And she she told me, she had at one point, she had worked with special needs kids. And because of her work with special needs kids, many people had told her she had earned her way into heaven. She fully believed she was going to heaven because she had been kind and caring. To special needs children. Now as a special needs dad. I truly appreciate. People who are kind. And caring. To special needs children. But that is not a basis. For salvation. Salvation is not found. In our goodness. Our kindness. Or our good works. It is found in faith. In Christ alone. But. But that brings tension doesn't it. In verse 21. We've seen that those who believe Jesus will obey Jesus. And then in verse 22 and 23, we learn that our our good works alone is not a basis for our salvation. And if we make it the basis, we're without salvation. So how do we how do we reconcile this difference, this this tension that we have? 
we reconcile it by honestly answering the question. Why do I do what I do? Why do I do the good works that I do? Do I do what I do to become righteous? Do I do what I do because Jesus has made me righteous? Do I do what I do so that God will love me? Do I do what I do because God has demonstrated His love for me on the cross? Do I do what I do so I won't go to hell? Do I do what I do because Jesus has saved me from hell? Those questions sound very similar, but there is an eternally significant difference between them. To understand why the difference is so great, we have to remind ourselves who Jesus was and what Jesus did. Jesus wasn't just a good man. He wasn't just a good teacher. John 12 and 41 tells us that the great and the glorious God that Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6 was Jesus. So before the incarnation, Jesus was great, glorious, and surrounded by heavenly beings that constantly praised Him. He willingly laid aside His glory. He took on human flesh. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He did incredible miracles. He helped many people. He taught amazing truths. And then He was unjustly arrested, falsely accused, and condemned to die a criminal's death. Prior to His death, He was beaten, spit upon, stripped naked, and nailed to a cross to suffer and die. And yet, that death was not a surprise. The death on the cross was the entire reason that He came. His beating, His death, was His plan to pay the penalty for your sin and mine. Jesus was brutally beaten and murdered so that you and I could be saved. He did this so that we could be righteous through Him. Have our sins forgiven through Him. Have eternal life through Him. Have abundant life through Him. Be adopted into the family of God through Him. It was all for us, but it's all through Him. We know this is true because He was resurrected on the third day, never to die again. He ascended into heaven. He now sits at the Father's right hand, always making intercession for us. And one day He will come back and take us to live in a place that is free of sin, evil, pain, and suffering. What Jesus did for us on the cross is the basis of our salvation. There is no other way to be saved except through Jesus. This is true. No matter how many good deeds we may have done or what kind those of deeds we may have done. The Bible says, if I, set aside, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Jesus died in vain. Right? To say that we will make it to heaven because of our good deeds is to say that Jesus' death was a waste of time. It is to say that Jesus didn't need to die for me because I could make it on my own. I could fix it myself. I could take care of my problem. And that is the opposite of the gospel message. We are saved through grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And receiving salvation, it is an either or deal. Either we receive it by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, or we do not have it. There is no salvation 
apart from faith in Jesus. Salvation cannot be received by a combination of faith and works. And this is why the reason we do what we do matters eternally. If I do what I do in order to be righteous, then my good works prevent me from ever being righteous. If I do what I do so that God will love me, it keeps me from ever truly experiencing the love of God in my life. If I do what I do to escape hell, then it guarantees hell will be my eternal destination. On the other hand, if I do what I do because Jesus has made me righteous, then my good works glorify God and deepen my relationship with Jesus. If I do what I do because God has demonstrated His love for me on the cross, then my good works demonstrate the greatness of God and allow me to experience His love throughout my life. And if I do what I do because God has saved me from hell through Jesus, then it ensures that I will not only make heaven my home, but one day will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. This is why we have to be sure that we truly know Jesus. He says in verse 23, Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. When we truly know Jesus, obedience won't be an issue because we will want to do what He wants us to do. When we truly know Jesus, we won't work to be righteous because we'll understand the sheer futility of it. Instead, we will do what we do because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. To know Jesus, to know the one who has died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. To truly know him. It changes us. Always. I mean, how, how, could it, how could it not? How could I truly know the one who died in my place and, and then say, I really don't want to do anything. I just, I, I know the right things and that should be good enough. How, how could I truly know the one who died in my place and say, I appreciate that, but look at all I've done. Look at, don't you think I've done this on my own? How could I truly know the one who has died and not just give my all to him and say, I'll, I'll do whatever you want me to do. My life is yours, not to earn your favor, not to earn your righteousness, but because of what you have done for me. Knowing Jesus always changes us. When you go to Scripture, you find that there are two kinds of people that leave after they meet Jesus. Those who are changed and those who are not. Those who are changed are people that He saved. People that He touched. People that He worked mightily before. Those who were not were those who rejected Him. So if I can come to Jesus and leave unchanged, I did not receive Jesus. That is not something that can genuinely happen. We cannot genuinely know Jesus and to know all that He has done for us and think that we have any merit on our own for our righteousness. 
We cannot genuinely know Jesus and all that He has done for us and then be unwilling to do anything that He would have us to do. A life of obedience and service to Him is all that makes sense when we truly know the One who died on the cross in our place. So the question is, do I know Jesus? Or perhaps a better way to explain it is, does my life demonstrate that I know Jesus? Paul writes, examine yourselves to see if your faith is genuine. Test yourself. Surely you know that Jesus Christ is among you. If not, you have failed the test of genuine faith. Now, he wants them to examine to see if they're saved. That's the point. But before we look at what he said, let's notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, have you come to an altar? He didn't say, did you pray a prayer? He didn't say, have you been baptized? He didn't say, do you attend church? He didn't say, were you raised in church? He didn't say, are your parents Christians? He didn't even say, have you received Jesus into your heart as your Lord and Savior? What he did say was examine your life and see if your life demonstrates that Jesus is with you. And he told them that if their lives do not demonstrate that Jesus is with them, it is because they are disqualified, meaning they were not saved. That is not a point we can rush past. Do do our lives demonstrate that Jesus is with us? Let me ask you, how different or how is your life different because of Jesus? What actions do you take in your life on a regular basis because of Jesus? Right? Not because you're older. Not because you've gotten married. Not because you've emotionally matured. Not because of any external circumstances. Just because of Jesus. What do you do in your life regularly just because of Jesus? What is different in your character just because of Jesus? Not because you're older. Not because you've gotten married. Not because you've emotionally matured. Not because of any external circumstances. Just because of Jesus. How are you different? How am I different? Just because of Jesus. If there is no change, if there is no difference just because of Jesus, then perhaps we should take seriously what Paul says about being disqualified in that sense. Perhaps we should take seriously what Jesus said about the reality of hearing, I never knew you, depart from me. Perhaps we should take seriously what the Apostle John said. About the fact that we are a liar and the truth is not 
in us. If there is no difference in our lives because of Jesus, the point today isn't try harder. Trying harder won't make the difference. Trying harder won't fix the problems. Trying harder will fail. If there is no change in our lives because of Jesus, our need is not to try harder. Our need is to be born again. It is to be genuinely saved to begin with. When we come to Jesus in faith, He will save us and He will change us. When we are born again, we are made new and we are made different. That requires us to believe in Jesus, to make the intentional decision to place our faith in Jesus. And that's more than believing that there's a God out there somewhere. And it's more than even believing that Jesus existed. It is believing that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Not just the sins of the world, but your sins as an individual. It's believing that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. It's believing that the only reason that you will hear, well done, good and faithful servants... That you'll be admitted entrance into heaven is because of what Jesus has done. It is saying, my good works add nothing to my salvation. It is saying that that nothing I have done makes makes me qualified or worthy of salvation. It is a a letting go of self-righteousness, a letting go of self-sufficiency, and clinging to the cross and saying, this and this alone is my hope and my all. And when we do that, our lives are made different. We will be different. So if you don't see the results of Jesus in your life, don't make excuses today. Don't treat this as no big deal because Jesus didn't. Jesus said, those who do not see Him in their lives, they will hear. Depart from me. I never knew you. Do not bank eternity on the fact that you'll probably get by. Do not go into eternity unprepared and thus hear the saddest words of all. I never knew you. Depart from me. Let's bow our heads. Close our eyes. I think there's two ways we have to respond to this this morning. One, there is a personal response that we have to make. On a personal level, we all have to ask and answer those questions. Does my walk match my talk? I mean, is it clear by my life that I have believed in Jesus? And then we have to answer, why do I do what I do? Do I do it because or do I do it for? Because the, the reason matters. And if our lives do not testify of Jesus being in them, we must repent. We must believe. We must call on Jesus to save us. There also needs to be a response. If we can say, yes, I know that I'm saved, 
there has to be a response of a burden for others. A care for other people beside ourselves. And there has to be a willingness to let go of, of anything, whether it's someone I love, someone I care about, no matter how personally I want them to be saved, to deceive myself and say, I'm sure they're saved because they made a profession, even though their life today is a worker of iniquity. It does nothing but soothe our conscience while we allow them to go to hell. There must be a renouncing of that. And a recognition that they need Christ. Praying for their salvation and a willingness to go to them, talk to them and share Jesus with them. God help us not to soothe our conscience with easy lies while we allow our loved ones to go unhindered into hell. Pray. Oh God, we love you today. Have your way in our hearts and in our lives this morning. Father, we need you to help us to take this message and apply it first to ourselves. Lord, let us all examine our lives better to spend some time agonizing in prayer and soul searching and know that we're saved than to skate past this easily. And in eternity here, I never knew you depart from me. But God, once we've settled the answer and we know that we're saved. Lord, we don't want to be judgmental. But God, we do want to look and be clear about our loved ones. Better to have an awkward conversation now. Than to know that we let them go smoothly and easily into hell without it ever being something that we even tried to stop. Give us the attitude that Spurgeon had when he prayed, if sinners be damned, let them climb over our bodies and pull past our pleas for their salvation. Let not our lost loved ones and those that we care about go to hell without us at least praying for their salvation and having at least one conversation with them about their need for Jesus. Move the scales from our eyes that we could clearly see. Have your way in our hearts and in our lives today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.